The Bob Murphy Show, episode 226. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. First of all, first things first, I want to apologize for the delay in getting out episodes in December of 2021. I don't have a great excuse except that a lot of stuff was going on and well, I'll make up for it in the coming in this in this year, I'm assuming at this point. You folks are hearing this in 2022. Let me mention a quick thing here. I want to give a plug for Dr. Keith Smith. I've interviewed him a few times on the Bob Murphy show, but also he helped me personally. So I'm going to be a bit vague for obvious reasons, but we had a medical issue going on in my household. And we were not able to just get help with our, you know, our conventional channels. Things were just going to take months when really, you know, we, we needed some attention much earlier than that. And I just tried to, I sent an email to Keith, asked him if, you know, anything he can do to help anybody, you know, and he was a lifesaver. He put me in touch with somebody in his network and we got our issue resolved months ahead of what would have happened had Keith not intervened. And he's perhaps able to do that for you and your family as well. And um, so Keith is the head of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. So if, if you've got something going on and you, you uh, are hitting a brick wall and on your end with the conventional medical establishment and health insurance establishment and you're at your wit's end, can't hurt you to reach out to Dr. Keith Smith of the again, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. If you go to the details of this episode, folks, I'll gives, you know, more specifics if you're, if you're not sure how to get in touch with him. Again, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 226. And Keith, maybe he can directly help you or he knows someone in his immediate network that can help or he's also affiliated with the Free Market Medical Association. So maybe he knows somebody there. So again, whether it's something more can, you know, straightforward or if you have a thing that requires a specialist and again, you're hitting a brick wall on your end, just go ahead and, and reach out to Keith and maybe he can put you in touch with somebody that is able to address your concerns much more quickly than the system. Let me also mention that I am, so I wasn't completely shirking my podcast duties when you guys were waiting for new episodes, waiting in vain, perhaps. What I'm going to do after this episode that I'm recording right now is start on a series dedicated to Klaus Schwab. He is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. And the point of this series, I'm not sure. I think at this point, it's probably going to be three episodes. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So he's, I'm sure you folks have heard of the Great Reset. So this is the guy that is the brainchild of that. The more I learned about him, the more I think it's important for us to know who this guy is and what he's up to. And I'll just leave it at that for right now. So what I've been doing is reading his books He's got one that came out, I think, 2016 or so called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. And that's got a lot of stuff in there that's sort of a blueprint for what's coming. 
And then he's got another book that came out when COVID first broke and it was pretty quickly turned around on COVID-19 and the Great Reset. So I'll be reviewing those books and also just giving you some more background about who this guy is and what the World Economic Forum is and some of the stuff he's been doing for decades at this point. And so you can decide on your own whether he's just there trying to help or if he's a supervillain bent on world domination. All right, that's kind of the, the teaser for the series. Okay, so what I want to do in this episode, what I had originally planned on doing was just walking through some of the highlights. I've recently gone toe-to-toe with Joe Weisenthal, who is a, an editor at Bloomberg, and he, he wrote something about currency debasement, and I'll go through that. But what also just recently broke as I'm getting ready to record this is there was a an economist, the think the... UMass Amherst. So Isabella Weber is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So she recently had an article on December 29th in The Guardian called, We Have a Powerful Weapon to Fight Inflation, Price Controls. It's time we consider it. And so let me just go ahead and do some quick reactions to this article, and then I'll circle back and talk about my exchanges with Weisenthal, since that was the main thing I wanted to hit in this episode. Okay, so I'll just read some excerpts. Again, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 226 if you want to see the links for everything I'm talking about in this episode. All right, so let me just summarize some of the key points of Professor Weber's article. Inflation is near a 40-year high. Central banks around the world just promised to intervene. However, a critical factor that's driving up prices remains largely overlooked, an explosion of profits. And the profits have reached levels not seen since the aftermath of the Second World War. And she says, the Federal Reserve has taken a hawkish turn this month, but cutting monetary stimulus will not fix supply chains. What we need instead is a serious conversation about strategic price controls, just like after the war. And so she says, the economists are divided into two camps on inflation. There's the transitory team that says, hey, let's just hold the course because this is just going to work itself out pretty soon. Whereas team stagflation urges for fiscal restraint and a raise in interest rates. And she says that, but there's a third option that we're not hearing much about. The government could target the specific prices that drive inflation instead of moving to austerity, which risks a recession. And that's so now she's making an analogy with the current situation in the Second World War. So during that period, she says the Roosevelt administration imposed strict price controls and instituted the Office of Price Administration. In comparison with what happened in the First World War, price rises were low while the increase in output was almost beyond imagination. And then after the war, the question was, what do we do with these price controls? And so she mentions that plenty of economists, including Paul Samuelson, Irving Fisher, Frank Knight, Simon Kuznets, Paul Sweezy, and Wesley Mitchell, wanted to continue the price controls. And they had written that in a New York Times article. That's actually interesting. I'm going to make a note here, folks. I'm not going to do it right now because, again, I wanted to focus on Weisenthal, but she's linking to like an an archived version, obviously, of a New York Times article that these economists all jointly authored. So that might be fun to go back and look at that and see what their arguments were. Okay, so the main argument that they made was that there were bottlenecks. This isn't a quote from that old New York Times article. This is Weber paraphrasing. She's saying that their point was that as long as bottlenecks made it impossible for supply to meet demand, price controls for important goods should be continued to prevent prices from shooting up. 
All right. And so then Truman, President Truman, warned in October of 1945. So he's explaining why he's leery about just snapping his fingers and completely removing the price controls all like that, like pulling off the Band-Aid. He said, because after the First World War, the U.S. had, quote, so this is now Harry Truman talking, simply pulled off the few controls that had been established and that let nature take its course. And then what happened, this is now Truman again, the result should stand as a lesson to all of us. A dizzy upward spiral of wages and the cost of living ended in the crash of 1920, a crash that spread bankruptcy and foreclosure and unemployment throughout the nation. And then Weber's talking now and says, nevertheless, price controls were pulled in 1946, again, triggering inflation and a boom-bust cycle. So instead of doing that, she's arguing for strategic price controls. And of course, it's not just about narrow economic considerations. As with everything from leftists, here we go. Strategic price controls could also contribute to the monetary stability needed to mobilize public investments towards economic resilience, climate change mitigation, and carbon neutrality. So if we ever did have aliens attacking us, as Paul Krugman sometimes <laughs> tiptoes up towards recommending as a way to get governments to do the right thing and borrow and spend a bunch of money, I'm sure that progressives would say, you know, the good thing is, as we build these lasers, fight off the Martians, we can then use it to also heat up the boilers and therefore get rid of coal-fired power plants. So really, it's a win-win. Okay, so reaction to this, this is pretty standard stuff. I mean, there's countless examples from history where the authorities print too much money that drives up prices. People get mad because of the price inflation. Then the authorities impose price controls while they continue to print money and everything disappears from the shelves. So now there's, you get the worst of both worlds. You have goods that are more expensive than they used to be out of the reach of the average person and they're not even on the shelves anymore. All right. And you know, this really happened like in Venezuela. That's exactly what happened. And it's not just, oh, wow, a minor inconvenience. I mean, there was Ben Powell was telling me because he was doing research for his book that he did with Bob Lawson, I think. You know, he was in, a, in an adjacent country and he, he said like middle class people, they would have to just spend a day like once a week or so just walking into the neighboring country to load up on toilet paper and paper towels and stuff and then walk back. I mean, Americans, the only thing I think we, can, we have as a, as a frame of reference is what happened when the you know, COVID restrictions first hit and everybody freaked out and you couldn't get toilet paper anywhere. I mean, that's, for us, that was outrageous and we couldn't believe it. And that was lasted for, you know, like a month or so. But I mean, that's a fact of life for people in regimes that keep printing money and impose price controls, right? And this isn't deep stuff. You print money, prices rise. So that means the cost of obtaining goods, you know, like the wholesale price goes up. And so then if the government comes along and makes it illegal for merchants to even break even, right? They, they can't, quote, pass through those price hikes to the, you know, the retail price. What's the merchant going to do? They're not going to buy something at 10 that they're only allowed to sell at five then you're losing money, right? So they'll just refrain from buying it in the first place. Why would you stock your shelves with stuff that you're not allowed to even break even on? So they stop doing that. And then all of a sudden, oh, look it. There's nothing on the shelves anymore, right? This, again, this isn't hard. This isn't some deep, complex theory. And it's not as if this is something that only happens 
and thought experiments that economists on the right come up with. This happens time and again throughout history, that when there's inflation and then they impose price controls, you get shortages, right? It also happened in both world wars. So to say that, oh, price controls worked in the world wars, well, yeah, they suppressed the official measured increase in prices. And it's also why there was strict rationing. Remember, they call it pent-up demand. Like Keynesians love that. Oh, after the war, the pent-up demand. And da, 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 da. Well, why was demand pent-up? Because you weren't allowed to buy normal stuff during the wars. All right, the institutional details differed between the First and the Second World Wars, but you had little things like, like ration coupons and stuff and meatless Tuesdays and things like that. All right, women couldn't get nylon stockings because you needed the nylon for the war effort, all that kind of stuff. Right, so it's not that the government made more resources available. It's that, think of it this way, steel and glass and iron and rubber that normally would have gone into consumer goods instead were getting channeled into military goods. And so something has to give. You can't be cranking out a bunch of tanks and planes and bombs and bullets and still be cranking out just as much in terms of televisions and radios and cans of tuna fish. Well, there weren't, weren't too many TVs getting cranked out in the First World War, no matter what, right? So that's just got to give, you know, that standard scarcity trade-offs. And so if you have a normal price mechanism, what happens is, for example, if the government, and there doesn't have to be inflation, right? So this is like something Mises would recommend. Mises would say the government can borrow money and or raise conventional taxes to raise the funds to then enter the market and buy up those goods, you know, those resources. And that pushes up their price, but other prices go down because of the taxation, right? So the consumers don't have as much after-tax income, disposable income, so they can't go out to movie theaters and restaurants and they can't go buy as many uh, luxury items and so forth. You know, some prices go up, some prices go down, but on net, there's no reason for prices in general to go way up if the government is financing the war expenditures through taxation and borrowing because it's not printing more money. It just shifts, you know, how resources are directed. And the benefit here is the public is fully aware of how expensive the war is. And so maybe they would say, you know what? It's not worth it. Maybe we shouldn't be going through this economic privation to uh, intervene in some conflict across the ocean. In contrast, Mises said, if the government finances the war effort through inflation, through printing money, well, it's not creating more resources. It's not actually easing that trade-off, but it's making it harder to understand what's going on. And so now it's still the case that if the government is producing more tanks, that means the private sector is probably getting fewer automobiles. But it's not as clear to the consumer that, oh, it's because the government, you know, raised my taxes or because interest rates went way up because the government's borrowing so much money that that's why I'm not able to go buy a car the way I would have normally been able to. It's not as obvious. Now it's just prices, things get really expensive and your wages don't keep up with it. So in real terms, your consumption goes down as the average household but it's not as obvious who's to blame for it, especially if the governments out there, politicians and stuff are, you know, railing against speculators and war profiteers and there's currency speculators attacking the dollar and that kind of stuff. And it's not as obvious that, well, no, it's because the government is siphoning resources out of private channels and 
directing them towards the war effort, just like before. It's just this is sneakier. And so that's why Mises says that inflation as a means of war finance is actually undemocratic. That's what he means, is that because now the it's not like the public gets to realize what's going on and make a decision, whereas before, if the government's explicitly raising taxes and or borrowing more money, then it's more obvious what's going on and, and not using inflation to ease the pain of the borrowing. All right. So also, too, I mean, it's the way Weber is explaining the boom-bust cycle. Austrians, of course, would say, yeah, when the government prints a bunch of money to finance the war and then they slam on the brakes after the war is over, there's a crash. That's standard Austrian business cycle theory. Then I'll link to, uh, that's something that Tom Woods and I have both talked about, was the depression that you've never heard of. The 1920-21 depression, it kind of dispels all of the official rhetoric about the Great Depression. Because all the reasons that the Great Depression supposedly occurred and all the mistakes that the government Federal Reserve supposedly made about the Great Depression, they did much worse at the end, tail end of World War I. And yet, it's not like the 1920s were the Great Depression, right? It was the Roaring Twenties. All right, so I'll put links to that stuff as well. Okay. Last thing I'll just mention. So this notion that, oh, we have supply bottlenecks. And so what we're going to do is put strategic price controls in place in those sectors to buy time. That's got things backwards, if, if anything, right? That if you have a supply bottleneck, right? If people are not producing enough in a certain sector, what you do to get people to produce more there is let the price shoot up. That's a signal to everybody that, oh, this is an area that needs attention. People want more out of this sector than is currently coming out. And so how do you mobilize and motivate everybody to rearrange their activities so that more stuff comes out of there as soon as possible? Or I won't even say as soon as possible. In the efficient manner necessary, right? Because it's not that everything else should come to a screeching halt and just boost output in that one sector. No, there's, there's trade-offs involved. And so letting prices do what they do, they communicate information. That's what you need to have happen. And so to have a bunch of bureaucrats say, well, we're just going to go ahead and put a lid on that price to buy time. And no, you're lengthening the time, the duration of the supply bottleneck if you don't allow prices to go up. Again, it's like you're treating a bunch of patients with malaria or something and you just come in and you do something to the thermometer so that they're not allowed to go above 99 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the way you're, you know, we're buying time for the patients by limiting what the thermometers can show us. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Hey folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. Okay, so now let's pivot. I'll talk about Joe Weisenthal. So he had um, tweeted out, well, he retweeted something from some guy, Adam Singer, who I don't know who that is. So here, I'm going to read Adam Singer's tweet. And, and this stuff originally occurred in mid-November of 2021. And then I responded, then Joe responded to me, and we went back and forth. And I'm finally now just documenting it for you folks. And there's a Mises.org article I wrote in response to the first round. And so I'll link to that also, folks. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 226. All right, so Adam Singer said, good thread from Cullen. I think it's Cullen Roche he was talking about. A question I continue to have is why are so many people obsessed with making sure time travelers from 100 years ago who show up with just the change in their pockets are able to buy a hamburger today? 
All right. And so what Roach was showing stuff about price, they, they were mocking the people who were concerned about price inflation, right? So again, this was in November of 2021 when inflation was really officially becoming a big deal, price inflation, consumer price inflation, all right? So what is Adam Singer talking about in case you don't understand? What does he mean time travelers with change in their pockets from 100 years? What they're doing is they're poking fun at people like Ron Paul and his fans who say stuff like, oh, since the Federal Reserve became active in late 1913, over the next 100 years, the dollar has lost whatever, you know, 99% of its purchasing power. And so what, what Adam Singer is saying is, why does that matter? Because the point is, people back in 1913 would not have just held on to the change in their pockets. They wouldn't have just taken four quarters and left them in their pocket and then waited 100 years and then tried to buy something with it. So their point is, who cares if a dollar bill from 1913 could buy a lot more stuff than a dollar bill in 2013 can? Why do I care? You know, what, what, what is that? What are the implications of that? And so then Joe Weisenthal agreed with Adam Singer. And so he retweeted what I just read to you. And then Weisenthal added, it would be immoral, in my opinion, to have a monetary system that allowed a time traveler from 100 years ago to maintain their purchasing power all that time without having done anything in that time other than store money under a mattress. Okay, so he upped the ante. Weisenthal did. He was saying, it's not merely that as a matter of you know, policy, why should we want such a system? He's saying it would be downright immoral if we were to foster a system in which somebody from 1913, you know, steps into a time machine and pops out in 2013 and he's got change in his pockets and now he wants to enter the marketplace and he wants to have preserve his purchasing power, right? And so that's why Weisenthal is saying he hasn't done anything in that time other than store money under a mattress, All right? So again, I'm hoping you guys see the kind of perspective they're recoiling against. It's the standard Ron Paul type of thing to say the Fed has debased the dollar, you know, what a dollar can buy today is tiddly compared to what a dollar used to be able to buy before the Fed came along. And so again, their point is, so what? Why should we want to reward someone who just holds on to currency for 100 years? And, you know, and so where are they going with it? Because their point is, you should go do something productive with it, right? Somebody 100 years ago isn't just going to put it in a piggy bank or under the mattress and just sit there Instead, they're going to invest it or, or lend it to somebody. And then it can go do something productive and then it's going to earn a rate of return. So it's not merely going to just earn a nominal 0% rate of return, which is what physical currency earns you. Instead, you're going to earn a positive nominal rate of return such that you know, your $1 in 1913 grows to whatever, $30 later on or whatever, $50 later on. And so even if the purchasing power gets crushed, still on net, you know, you, you come out ahead. You can buy more stuff than you could in 1913 because you're not just holding on to the currency itself. The number of dollars in your possession grows over time. And that's really the important thing. This, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm adding to their position. Okay, so that's where they're coming from. And so I disagree strongly with what they're saying. All right, and so there's a few ways that I was going to try to get that across. So the first thing is just to talk about the time scale. And I want to say, I wonder how far Weisenthal would push that. So he's saying if somebody just sits on currency for a hundred years, then you know it would be immoral 
if our system allowed that person to maintain his purchasing power over that time when all he's done is just, you know, hoarded money. He hasn't done anything socially useful. So why should he even be able to buy the same amount of stuff 100 years later that he could originally? That's crazy. Why would we let him do that? And so I want to say, all right, well, what if we, instead of making it 100 years, what if we just make it over the, the length of a summer? And so I posited an example, like suppose there's some kid that cuts lawns and he makes $25 a weekend cutting lawns and he wants to buy a $300 Xbox, right? And so, you know, every four weeks he's accumulated $100. And so after three months, he's got the 300. And the whole time he's just been putting the $25 every weekend under his mattress. And so after the summer's over, he's accumulated $300 in that fashion. He takes it out and he goes to the store and he buys the Xbox. And I want to say, is Weisenthal upset that our, you know, suppose that were the case that the Xbox, you know, for the story to work, the Xbox costs $300 in the beginning of the summer and it still costs $300 at the end of the summer. And the kid, you know, he didn't lend the money out to anybody. He didn't invest it in a, he didn't put it in a checking account. He didn't invest it in stocks. He just took the $25 in cash that his neighbors give him for cutting the lawn every weekend and just stores it under his mattress. All right. So if the kid had had $300 in cash at the beginning of the summer, nobody would have objected to him going and buying an Xbox with it. Not even Joe Weisenthal would have begrudged the kid from doing that. Okay. If the kid every week took his $25 and went and bought ice cream and went to the movies with it, Weisenthal wouldn't have had a problem. And so my point was, why are we getting mad that the system would allow this kid to stockpile that cash over three months and buy the Xbox at the end? What's the problem? Why should the kid get penalized? Why should the Xbox cost more to incentivize the kid to spend his money earlier? What if the kid wants an Xbox? And again, nobody would have objected if he had had the 300 up front to buy it back in you know, late May when he gets out of school, but he didn't have the 300 at that point. He worked all summer to accumulate it and then he buys it at the end of the summer. So why is Weisenthal, you know, what's his problem with that? So if you can see there that, yeah, it's not obvious why we should be mad at a system. I mean, either way, the kid is working for the Xbox. In one sense, you step back and what's really happening, abstracting away from the money, the kid is exchanging his labor and lawn cutting services to obtain the Xbox. That You know, he values the Xbox more than he values his leisure and the merchant, you know, values the, the money, you know, so it's a multiple trades are happening here. And that's the, the role that a medium exchange plays is it allows people to do a complicated web of mutually advantageous trades that would be difficult to implement if they were restricted to individual one-off transactions. But ultimately, everybody involved is happier with the kid exchanging his leisure to cut lawns and whatever it is that the neighbors are doing to obtain their money. You know, how are they getting the $25 every week to pay him? They're doing something that others value. That's how they're getting the money. And so when you, you know, step back and that's how money works, right? It helps coordinate complicated exchanges involving lots of people that would be difficult again to do in this, you know, one-off transactions, right? Because again, the kid might not want anything, whatever it is that the neighbors do, like if the neighbor is a proctologist, the kid might not need any of those services, right? So if, if we're restricted to barter exchanges or let's say direct exchange, then nothing would happen, right? But it would, can work that the kid cuts the lawn of the neighbor. The person who makes the Xbox needs a proctologist. You, you see how I, what I'm getting at here, right? 
that's part of understanding the role that monetary calculation and indirect exchange play in a market economy. Okay. So again, I hope Weisenthal would not be mad at a system that allows this kid the flexibility of postponing his consumption for three months and not being penalized because he had the audacity to wait before getting his Xbox, right? Again, so put it this way. What if the kid, you know, had the option? He could have just in one week just really hurt himself and, you know, just mowed lawns like crazy and gotten $300 in one week and then gone to the mall and bought his Xbox. Weisenthal would have no problem with that. Well, except Weisenthal probably is against child labor, but you get the point. But instead, if the kid dribbles it out over three months, apparently Weisenthal's got a problem with that. Why? Or more specifically, Weisenthal's got a problem with the kid exchanging lawn cutting services early in that frame and then not losing purchasing power over time. You know, Weisenthal's saying, why should the kid be able to have the option of getting $25 worth of goods and services in, you know, and you can view it as what, like one twelfth. Why should the kid, when he cuts that lawn that first week, be able to buy one twelfth of an Xbox? But if he waits three months, he's still able to get one twelfth of an Xbox at that point. Weisenthal thinks it would be immoral to allow that to happen. So I'm just trying to underscore why, why would you, why would that be your inclination? All right. And so now if you see how, okay, it doesn't seem like it's so obviously awful in that scenario when it comes to a time traveler, right? Somebody in 1913 has $100 in cash in U.S. currency. He's able to buy all kinds of stuff back then at $100 would buy a lot. And now instead, he says, you know what? I'm willing to wait. Instead of consuming it now, I'm going to take this $100 bill, put it in a safe place where I know no one will find it for a century. I'm going to enter into this time machine Hopefully a fly doesn't get in there with me. Boom, ahead to the year 2013. I step out. I go find my hiding place. I get the $100 bill and I go out in the marketplace and I should be able to buy at least the same amount of stuff that I bought before. Would have been able to buy it back then. And for some reason, Weisenthal doesn't like that. He said, no. Okay, so what I'm trying to isolate here is actually, if anything, you should be able to buy more stuff you actually have performed a social service if you're willing to postpone consumption. In a sense, the person has exchanged present goods for future goods, right? Because he could have bought apples and hot dogs and hamburgers and cars and, well, not cars, but radio sets in 1913 with his $100 bill. He chose not to and instead waited 100 years. So there's a sense in which what he's doing is he's exchanging present goods back in 1913 for future goods available to be delivered in 2013. And in general, present goods are more valuable than future goods. So in general, they exchange at a premium. So if you have the ability to eat 10 apples today and instead you're willing to wait five years, in general, you should be able to get more than 10 apples of comparable quality five years later for that exchange. Now, why is that? Okay, and so here, now this gets really complicated I'll refer you folks who want the details to my three-part series on Bumbavirk. All right. And so the way I'm going to just summarize this quickly, some Austrians would get upset and think that I'm cutting corners or whatever. So again, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to like go into cul-de-sacs here and footnote my statements, but I just want to warn you, this stuff gets really complicated, especially for Austrian economists who are very particular about capital and interest theory. All right. So again, 
Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 226 if you want to get the gory details. I'll link to my Bombavrik series if you want all the nuances. But roughly speaking, subjectively, there's something called time preference. And that's why people tend to want goods available sooner rather than later. All right, just in general, again, this gets nuanced. I'm not going to keep faltering and jumping over cracks in the sidewalk here. But you know, if you exaggerate, it's really obvious. Would you want a pizza now or a pizza delivered in 10 years? Right. In general, people want it now. Okay. And in addition to that, there's also this other fact going on. And this is the one that Bumbavrik stressed, and it was controversial in his framework, that the longer the production process, if it's wisely chosen, the more roundabout it is, meaning like the more indirect, you can increase the physical yield from a given amount of physical inputs. Okay. So if you have a certain amount of labor hours, a certain amount of iron ore, certain amount of coal. Again, and these are measured in physical terms, not value terms, but physically speaking. And you want to say, what's the yield physically that I can get from this stuff? Like how many units of radio sets can I get? How many units of apple pies can I get? So on. If you use a more roundabout production process that's wisely chosen, then you can increase the physical yield. Okay. And so there's a sense in which you can physically transform a given amount of present goods into a larger number of future goods. Okay. And so if that's possible, you can see now, you know, given those two facts, why it makes sense that somebody who says, oh, right now I have the ability, I have the purchasing power. I could go get a hundred units of present goods and consume them. And Joe Weisenthal wouldn't bat an eye, but you know what? I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to postpone my consumption and I won't enter the marketplace and get goods to consume until several years from now. And so if I'm willing to do that, should I be able to get more than 100 units of goods in the future when I then decide to enter the marketplace? And again, there's, in general, it's, that seems quite reasonable because everybody else in general on the margin would rather get goods sooner than later. And physically speaking, technologically speaking, we are able to transform present goods into a greater number of future goods. And so that's why it's like showing that there's the means and the motive to give you, you know, a greater number of future goods if you're willing to postpone consumption. Because what's happening is by you postponing consumption, you're freeing up those present goods. Somebody else now can consume them because you're willing to wait. Okay. So that's what's going on. And now the way things get complicated, and this is why Keynesians and Austrians clash, or this is one of the reasons they do, is that what I've just explained to you is why technologically it's feasible, it's physically possible that if you're willing to postpone consumption in 1913 and not re-enter the scene until 2030, that if everybody else did things perfectly and they knew exactly what you were doing, what your intentions were, then, oh yeah, this guy was about to eat six apple pies and buy this many radio sets and buy this many, you know, nylon stockings for his wife. But now he's not going to, and he's going to re-enter the scene a hundred years from now. And so we can use all those things and give them to somebody else. And then that frees up resources and blah, 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 blah. And now we can a hundred years later produce more apple pies and more nylon stockings or nylon stockings that are higher quality and so on. And television sets was, he didn't even know what that was in 1913 and give that to the guy because you know, all those resources he freed up for us. If we knew all that with certainty, then yeah, it's physically possible that could work out. 
But in practice, the Keynesians say if the guy has money and then he just sits on it and hoards it, well, that makes demand crash and maybe people, you know, maybe that causes a depression or it contributes to it. So in general, if people aren't spending their money and they're just hoarding it, maybe that's not conducive to economic growth and investment. Why would you invest in increasing plant capacity when your sales are slumping, right? So that's a standard thing that Keynesians worry about. So here again, it's, you know, it has to do with the arguments about what causes the boom-bust cycle. And in general, you know, Austrians do not think that people saving money causes depressions. They think it's, again, having to do with the boom-bust cycle, the monetary authorities in conjunction with the banking sector inject a bunch of money, cause interest rates to become artificially low, that stimulates mail investments, causes an unsustainable boom, and then finally when they tighten the mistakes reveal themselves and there's a crash. That's not that people all of a sudden just, you know, commit the sin of saving. Or in general, you know, at any given time, we put it this way, what you call hoarding, what, what is hoarding? Hoarding is when somebody adds to cash balances, right? Well, at any given time, every piece of money in existence must be owned by someone, must be held in someone's cash balance. So there's no such thing it's money that's in circulation that's to be contrasted with money that's being hoarded. All money at all times is in someone's cash balance, right? And so at best, if you say all of a sudden there's an increase in hoarding, all you, all you mean is the desire to hold cash has gone up, right? It's not that, you know, you want to have a situation for a smooth economy where people don't want to hold cash. That's not the case. So, you know, in a smoothly functioning economy where the government and the banking system are not messing with people, you wouldn't expect there to be wild, unexpected swings in the demand to hold cash. Okay, so that's just part of the way to alleviate this. And I have a quote in the, in the article that, that I'll link to. I'm not going to read it because it's kind of a long one and it would be difficult for you to parse. It, it's, it's difficult even for Mises, his writing. But where Mises' point is, when you abstain from consumption whether you do so by taking the money that you could have spent on consumption and lending it out or giving it to a bank who then lends it out or you know investing it in the stock market or whatever. So there, even Keynesians would probably say, yeah, there's a better chance if you save and then lend it out that then that money still gets spent by somebody through investment. And so it doesn't depress demand. It just changes the composition of demand you know, towards investment and away from consumption. So maybe we won't have a depression. Mises' point is, whether you lend the money out or invest it or whether you just add it to your cash balances, the critical thing is that you have abstained from consumption. So now there are more resources available than otherwise would have been. And so in a market economy with freely floating prices, their prices can fall. So you're not going to persistently have slack capacity. If, if you know, there's a certain you know, amount of barrels of crude oil out there, they can be used. Prices just have to adjust it. You know, maybe the sellers originally were hoping to get a certain price for them and demand drops. And so then they lower the price. But the point is you're not just going to forever have resources that aren't being mobilized because, oh, the prices are too high and the demand's not there. All right. And so again, this, this partly comes up with, you know, the diagnosis of what causes depressions is that Austrians do not think that in general it's because, oh, prices are sticky. Or if, they, if it is because prices are sticky, that's not a market outcome. That's because there's labor unions that are supported by the government and or explicit government programs propping up prices. So that's why prices are sticky. And, and by the way, folks, this 
goes back to what I was saying in the depression of 1920 and 21, wage rates fell more rapidly in a 12-month span there than they did at any 12-month period during the Great Depression. And so that's partly why the Depression of 1920 and 21 was not so long-lived, is because, yeah, when demand fell off a cliff, because the monetary authorities stopped printing so much money, wage rates fell too. And so labor was able to get hired, whereas in the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover came along and insisted that wage rates be propped up. And he used various government carrots and sticks to do that, to get business to not cut wage rates. So the prices of retail goods fell, and yet labor remained artificially expensive. So it's no surprise that unemployment skyrocketed in the Great Depression, whereas it shot up and then came back down, you know, a decade earlier. Okay, so that's partly what's going on here. So just to quickly wrap things up here. So I wrote that response to Weisenthal. He chimed in then on Twitter and he, and he was very gracious. He said, hey, I'm glad Robert Murphy, you know, wrote this critique. I learned a lot from it. I see now better how my views differ from the Austrians. And, he's, and I'm paraphrasing here. And he said something like, um, the fundamental difference, it seems to me, is that the Austrians think that if you refrain from consumption, that somehow frees up resources that can be used elsewhere. Whereas I don't think it's like that, or at least I'm not convinced that that's actually going to happen in any given case, that it's, it's very iffy. I think that, you know, they're overlooking the role of demand, something like that. And so then I thought I was going to do a sort of a, not a gotcha, but like a, a reductio ad absurdum. And I said, you know, the difference between Weisenthal and me is that if, if we walk into a restaurant, we look around and we see all these people sitting there eating a bunch of burgers I am going to praise the foresight and the patience of the entrepreneurs who saved, you know, and abstained from consumption for years while they invested their excess income into accumulating the capital and building up, you know, the infrastructure, like coming up with the resources to build the restaurant itself, to, you know, put in those big ovens in the back, to then hire the workers and pay them, you know, in advance. You know, you're hiring the workers to do stuff before you turn a dime profit on your restaurant, right? So there's a lot of investment on the front end. It could blow up in your face to make it physically possible to then, you know, get the beef patties and start cranking out hamburgers. And I said, in contrast, Weisenthal is looking at that same outcome, all these people sitting there chowing down on hamburgers. And he's saying, wow, it's really a good thing that all these consumers were willing to spend money on hamburgers. That's what's really making this possible. Those are the people to be thanked and congratulated are the people who come in and hand over dollar bills and then, you know, stuff their faces with burgers. That That's the people that Weisenthal wants to pat on the back, not the person who scrimped and saved and invested and had foresight to anticipate, you know, does this neighborhood need another burger joint you know, for years when that person could have been consuming. And Weisenthal called my bluff. And he said, yep, that's exactly right. I do think that, uh, you know, of those two people to be thanked are the consumers, not the entrepreneur. Who, who built the restaurant. Okay, so there's one sense in which it's a, uh, a false dichotomy. Like obviously some entrepreneur who has the wisdom, or sorry, who, who has the patience to build this big factory and all it does is crank out Dr. Fauci coloring books featuring images of a, of a sexy Dr. Fauci. And you're saying, Bob, what the heck are you talking about? Did you lose it? No, I, I just recently saw that such a book does exist. I'm not even going to link to it, but... I, I assume it's a parody, but there is there is a Dr. Fauci coloring book that shows him in provocative poses. And I would have given it as Christmas gifts to various people had I known ahead of time. But in any event, presumably there's not too much demand for that. 
And so just because somebody has foresight and, or I shouldn't say foresight, has, has patience and frugality and is willing to invest in some factory to crank out something that nobody wants, well, that's not to be congratulated, right? So it's not merely your willingness to defer consumption. You have to defer it to a, a strategic end as to something that's useful, right? Just like the mere fact that you put a lot of labor hours into something doesn't mean it's valuable. So Weisenthal does have somewhat of a point that, yeah, you got to be producing something that people want. And so how do you know people want it? Well, they're willing to show up and pay for it. But that's not really what he's getting at, right? Really, it sounds like what he's saying is, oh, the people who are really making this happen are the ones who are spending the money on the hamburgers. And I want to say, no, that's not really the issue. Because if you cut the, the supply of dollars in half, all that could still happen. It's just all the numbers would get cut in half. And you can still have the same transaction, right? So the mere act of spending money is not the issue. To put it another way, if you look around the world and some places are very poor compared to, you know, Western Europe or the United States or Canada, and you're going to give advice to them, how is this, you know, this so-called third world country, how are they going to approach our standard of living? The issue is they need more capital. You know, well, really what they got to do is probably change their legal framework and regulatory structures and whatever to have a more secure rule of law. But in terms of physically, what's the problem is they don't have enough capital, right? They're, the labor in that region is very unproductive because it's not being augmented with capital. So they need more machines, tools, equipment to raise labor productivity. And there might also be you know, issues of education and training. But as the immigration debate shows, you can grab somebody from some very poor region and you plop them down in Western Europe or the United States and within a year they're going to be worried, you know, their output is going to be a lot higher than it was back home, right? So it's showing it's not the reason Americans and Germans are much more productive in factories isn't merely because, oh, we have a better educational system than people in Bangladesh or something. That's not why. It's because we have more capital. And again, it's not merely a physical thing. There's institutional rule of loss explanations for why is it that we have more capital per head in these countries, you know? So it's, I don't want to just make it a mere technocratic thing, but in terms of the, the physics of it, the technology, the engineering, why is it that more stuff per hour, per labor hour comes out of Western Europe and United States and so forth? It's because there's more capital per head. And so how, you know, what kind of advice would you give to those regions? You say, well, you have to start accumulating capital, either from, you know, foreign investment or domestic savings or both. Obviously, you know, change your institutional structures to encourage that. But that's what needs to happen. Whereas if Joe Weisenthal says, oh, the problem is you guys aren't willing to spend enough on hamburgers. If you want to just have a bunch of restaurants cranking out hamburgers the way we do in the United States, it's because your people are hoarding money don't you guys like hamburgers? Why don't you just, if you were just willing to go in there and buy hamburgers, then they would exist. You see how that doesn't work? Whereas if people just did like hamburgers, producing them is all you need to have happen, right? It, it doesn't take a lot to get people to go eat something they want to eat. And again, if you're saying, yeah, but how could the entrepreneur make money? If it, the prices could adjust, right? So if in real terms, you can go ahead and produce those things and have the people eat them, and it, it's you know technologically possible, it's not that you, oh, we got to make sure that we get demand right. That No, just let prices adjust and that'll be fine. It'll work itself out. Even if you think there's sticky prices or okay, fine, wait two years for the stickiness to, to erode. But the point is that the hard part, the reason it's difficult to achieve high standards of living is it takes 
time. You have to be willing to postpone consumption out of your given income to make it grow over time. That's what's tough. So the hard part is saving and frugality. It's not hard to consume. That's the fun stuff. That's the reward. Okay, so I think that's enough for now. I will wrap it up there. Thanks, folks, for your attention. And stay tuned. If you want to get a jump, you can go ahead and start reading Klaus Schwab's books on the Fourth Industrial Revolution and COVID-19 and the Great Reset, if you want. Or you can just wait for my series, which will be forthcoming. Thanks, everybody. Hope you had a good holiday, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.